This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the ninth episode of season 12. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that octopuses and squid have three hearts? They have one main heart that pumps oxygenated blood through their entire body, with the two other being branchial hearts that specifically pump blood through the gills to the main heart for oxygenation. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Final quote of the day. You know you've reached middle age when you're cautioned to slow down by your doctor instead of the police. That was said by Joan Rivers. Listener Amy Barlow requested this case. We're in the town of Harwich this week, located in the east of England county of Essex. It's located 9.8 miles south and slightly east of Ipswich, 16 miles east of Colchester and 66 miles northeast of London. Here are five quickfire facts about Harwich. Number one, Harwich International Port is one of the UK's leading multi-purpose freight and passenger ports. It is ideally located for North Sea freight and passenger traffic, primarily to and from Scandinavia and the Netherlands. Number two, the Mayflower is thought to have headed from England to the New World in 1620 from Harwich. The ship's captain, Master Christopher Jones Jr., was born in Harwich. Number three, Harwich has one of the UK's only surviving wooden working piers. Constructed in 1853, Hapney Pier was a popular departure point for paddle steamers until the First World War. Number four, the Electric Palace Theatre in the town is one of the oldest purpose-built cinemas still standing today. In the basement of the Grade 2 listed building is a former gas-powered generator engine with a seven-foot flywheel. And number five, the town became a naval base in 1657 and was heavily fortified. A circular fort called Harwich Redoubt was built in 1808 to defend the port of Harwich from Napoleonic invasion. 
According to the 2011 census, Harwich's estimated population is 17,684. Our story begins not in Harwich, but in England's capital city of London. Michael Beckwith was welcomed to the world by his mum and dad in 1971, with Barking Hospital, located in East London, being where he was birthed. Born and bred in the East End, Michael, who was often referred to as Mick to those who knew him, was a cockney lad through and through. His origins shone through no more clearly than when he watched his beloved Irons. West Ham United, who the media tend to refer to as the Hammers, were one of Michael's earliest passions. His love for the claret and blue clad players was unwavering. Michael and his mum Iris moved a good 60 miles northeast of their home to Harwich in 2003, settling in a property at Goodlake Close. A quiet cul de sac located half a mile southwest of the centre of the town, the mother and son duo had made the move on the back of a series of tragedies that rocked their family. I can't go into detail as to what happened and when, but at some point Michael lost his dad and sister, both of whom died young. To move away from the hustle and bustle of London life was perhaps a way of seeking some respite and clarity, with the hope being that Iris and Michael could begin their lives anew. Described by everyone who had the pleasure of knowing him as a gentle giant with a perpetual smile on his face, Michael devoted his life to helping and caring for others. At first, he secured a role working in a poultry factory in Witham, a town 30 miles away from his new home, but in around 2010, he finally found his calling. Seeing a job opportunity was available at Connolly Care Home, or Connolly House as it's also known, in the village of Wheelie, nine miles from Goodlake Close, Michael jumped at the chance and sent an application in. Mandy Howard, the home's assistant director, recalled not only reading through Michael's application, but she also remembered interviewing him and offering him the job. Mandy said, He was extremely lovely and charismatic, and that came across in his interview. It was why I hired him. He was just a lovely, caring young man. I can still remember the little dimples in his cheeks when he smiled. Connolly House is a 14-bedded facility for older people with a range of mental health conditions, including dementia, severe depression and schizophrenia. Patients may also be detained there under the Mental Health Act 1983. Michael and the other carers no doubt had their work cut out for them at times. Even so, he didn't let it affect his good mood and bright outlook. I wasn't over-exaggerating when I said he had a smile on his face at all times. You'd be hard-pressed to find an image of Michael where he's not beaming from ear to ear. Despite the tough circumstances he and Iris had gone through, he remained a positive person and had a lust for life that was unmatched. Michael had all the characteristics required to be successful in his role. His compassion shone through, which, combined with his naturally loving nature and kind heart, made him a real asset. He was, as described, a gentle giant who'd go to extreme lengths to ensure that if anyone was ever having a bad day or felt down, it wouldn't be for long if he was around. A cheeky smile and a quick chat with Michael was typically all that was required. Knowing that someone was there to give you the shirt off their back should the situation ever arise must have been comforting for not only the residents of the home, but for his colleagues and friends too. Everyone who knew or had met Michael spoke highly of him, regardless of how insignificant their relationship with him was. Outside of work, he pretty much kept to himself. He was also his mum's carer, you see, 
so a lot of his free time will have been spent with her, which I think is lovely. He had hobbies though, and made sure he spent time doing them. A keen fisherman or angler as it were, Michael was an active member of the Harwich Angling Club. He regularly went on fishing trips with his good friend Lee, who was the son of his neighbour Sandra Sandra had bonded with Iris almost immediately after she and Michael moved to the area, so it was only natural for their respective sons to form a similar friendship. One of the holidays Michael regularly celebrated, no doubt amongst others, was Bonfire Night, which is also called Guy Fawkes Night. Every November 5th, Michael would put on a fireworks display to commemorate the infamous gunpowder plot of 1605. It's a tradition many people celebrate here in the UK, as well as in some other Commonwealth countries. At the time of this story's events, the summer of 2016, Michael and Lee were planning to go away once more on a fishing trip, but it would sadly be something that would not go ahead. Michael, who was also a massive Elvis Presley fan and classic car fanatic, had his life abruptly taken away from him in the midst of planning the getaway with Lee. Before we get there, I must first provide some context. In around January 2016, Michael met a young 21-year-old woman called Rebecca Ryan, or Becky as she was more casually known, at the care home. She's not to be confused with the actress from Manchester who played Debbie Gallagher in Shameless. I'll be referring to her as Ryan for the rest of the show, just so you're aware, which hopefully isn't as confusing as it sounds in my head. Ryan began working at the home that month, and before long, Michael had taken a shine to her. They got on well, and despite Michael being more than twice Ryan's age, the pair soon began dating. When exactly their relationship began, I can't say for sure, but if I throw in some information about a third party in what would soon become a deadly love triangle, it should help us. Before joining the care home staff, Ryan was in a relationship with a 27-year-old man called Scott Swift. Swift would later deny this, but by all accounts, he was supposedly a very controlling boyfriend. He was ultra-jealous and became irate when he found out Ryan had spent time with not just male friends, but female ones too. Even her best friend felt uncomfortable spending time with Ryan by the end due to Swift's disapproving nature and demeanour. He is said to have told the friend that if she continued to spend time with Ryan, he'd make her home address publicly known. Such threats were taken extremely seriously, because standing at around 6 feet and weighing roughly 23 stone, Swift posed an intimidating figure. Various sources claim various dates, but at some point in the early spring of 2016, Swift and Ryan separated. The reason appears to have been due to Ryan's interest in Michael increasing to such a level that Swift is said to have seen the pair kissing in a car, whilst, as far as he was aware, Ryan was still his girlfriend. It could have been March or even as early as February when they separated, but I'm splitting hairs. The point is that Ryan and Swift's relationship didn't end mutually, and the latter was far from happy as he was still madly in love with the former. They remained friends, which no doubt pleased Swift immensely, and he continued to do his utmost to get Ryan back. As far as Ryan and Michael's relationship goes, that appears to have been a rather turbulent and unpredictable one. One such example of the erratic behaviour displayed was when Michael purchased an engagement ring that June and proposed to Ryan, who accepted the proposal with glee. A short while later, Michael suddenly did a complete 180 and decided he no longer wanted to marry her. 
One can only imagine how the conversation went when he asked Ryan for the £600 ring back. The pair's short relationship ended during the last week of July. The reason, according to one source, was that Ryan was the one who chose to end things as she claimed Michael was still in regular contact with an ex-girlfriend, with whom he'd been in a relationship for 10 years. Another article I read claimed he remained in a relationship with both women at the same time until he finally stopped seeing his long-term partner in May. Ryan accused him of being a liar and was far from happy at being deceived. She would carry that resentment with her over the next few days and it's what ultimately led to the event of July 31st, 2016. Wanting revenge, Ryan came up with a plan. Knowing full well that Swift was still in love with her and could easily be wrapped around her little finger, she got him on board with her sickening plot. Like Swift, Michael was still in love with Ryan, so he was more than willing to meet up with her as requested on that fateful day to discuss their relationship. He likely thought the chance of rekindling was on the cards, and he had no reason to distrust Ryan. He had no idea that by agreeing to meet her, he was putting himself in great danger. Ryan asked Michael to pick her up in his car and drive them to Barrack Lane. About halfway down, there's a footpath which leads towards Harwich RDF Tower, known as the Radar Tower. A unique survivor from World War II, the tower is believed to be the only Type 287 radio direction finding array in the world, whatever that means. Walking further down the isolated path as it swerves to the right, you end up at Beacon Hill Battery a late 19th and 20th century fort that was built to defend the port of Harwich. The locals, especially the kids given the fort is essentially an unofficial play area now, has been given many affectionate nicknames over the years. The WD and the Dubs are two common ones by the sounds of it, with various parts of the structure being given other names, such as The Cake, The Doll's House and Ghosty. Ryan explained that she would like to go for a walk down the path while having their chat, but she'd already organised for Swift and an accomplice to be there, waiting at the dead end of the path by a metal gate. The accomplice in question was 17 years old at the time. His name is Joseph Smith. Bonding with Swift over their mutual love of airsoft, Smith was easily led astray by the much older man, and some reports even claim that the teenager was tortured in the days leading up to July 31st to ensure that he would take part in the ambush. Smith, who some sources claim had a low IQ, would later claim that he was waterboarded by Swift on July 29th. That's an extreme method of torture. It's what the CIA supposedly did at Guantanamo Bay to extract information from people they deemed to be terrorists. Water is poured into the nose and mouth of the victim, who is forced to lie on their back with a wet cloth over their entire face. As the victim's sinus cavities and mouth fill with water, their gag reflex causes them to expel air from the lungs, leaving them unable to exhale and unable to inhale without aspirating water. It's meant to feel as though you're drowning. It's supposed to be horrendous. Smith had visited the home where married couple Tristan and Enderline Biddlecombe lived with his girlfriend Imogen Pawley. It was there where he was allegedly tortured by Smith. More on the Biddlecombes later. Smith's defence team would later explain in court that Swift had intensified the already horrendous act of waterboarding by putting lighter fuel under Smith's nose to make him think he was being covered in petrol. He'd had a bag placed over his head rather than a cloth, so he couldn't see anything. 
Swift is also alleged to have threatened Smith to help him with the use of various weapons. Smith didn't take Swift's claims of attacking a man all that seriously, despite the ordeal he'd just been put through. Swift made outrageous statements such as that all the time and never followed through. This time it would be different. I'd like to point out as well that I know Swift and Smith are very similar names with the same amount of letters. If you're confused, it confused me as well. Swift is the 27-year-old, just to confirm, and Smith is the 17-year-old. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. After picking up Ryan in the late evening of July 31st, it was heading towards 10pm when they met. Michael noticed how she appeared glued to her phone. It wasn't as if she was just browsing social media though. She appeared to be frantically messaging someone. The person on the other end was Swift. The former partners were cryptically messaging about the planned attack on Michael by referring to him as Princess, the name of Ryan's family cat. An example of a message is, When you see the cat, remember to feed the cat and don't forget to loose the cat out. Concerned at what he saw, but not enough to warrant abandoning the trip, Michael continued driving and stopped the car as planned at Barrack Lane. Walking towards the end of the track, again as planned, Michael was taken aback at the sight of two people standing in wait. Their mouths and noses were covered, indicating they were using bandanas to hide their identities, and in their hands were iron bars. Looking into their respective eyes, the only parts of their faces visible, Michael held his hands up and explained he didn't want any trouble. I think that's pretty much the same reaction anyone would have in that situation, but the two attackers simply shrugged their shoulders and began their onslaught, using the heavy iron bars as weapons. Smith would claim that he never struck Michael with his bar, insisting he only hit a car instead, but I'm not sure how much sense that makes given Michael's car will have likely been parked back on Barrack Lane. Nevertheless, Michael was struck a total of 17 times, suffering devastating injuries to his head, arms and legs. Leaving him for dead, the two attackers swiftly left the scene. Ryan, who at no point screamed at Smith and Swift to stop, then opted to dial 999 and pretended to have just stumbled across Michael being beaten up by two men. The following audio clip is the call Ryan made to 999 that night at 9.59pm. Give it a listen. Where is the person that's been hurt? Um, it's, there's a lay-by right next to the school. Like, it's dark and, and he's right at the end of the road. Okay, does he need an ambulance? I, I don't know. I haven't seen how bad they beat him up. I'm just going to him now. Okay, I can stay on the phone with you. What's your name? Rebecca. And your surname, Rebecca? Ryan. And uh, how many people were there that attacked him? Two. And both males? I think so. They were all covered up. I couldn't what, see. in dark clothing or? In dark clothing, yeah. Are you anywhere near him at the moment? 
Yeah, uh, not too far away from him. And you were just walking, were you? We were just walking about, and then we heard a noise behind us. Mm-hmm. And then when we turned around, they just went for him. I tried to grab one of them, and they just hit me. To further make it seem as though she was an innocent bystander, Ryan had Smith punch or slap her in the face before he and Swift ran off. Where did they run off to? The Biddlecombs' house, of course. It's unclear how much the couple knew about the planned attack, but given Smith's claims he was tortured at their home, it's fair to assume they knew more than enough. Arriving at the house separately after attacking Michael, Smith and Swift were both reportedly out of breath and looked extremely agitated, according to the Biddlecombs. Smith opted to head upstairs and take a shower, during which time Swift hopped onto the couple's Xbox console and played a video game. Smith's clothes were then washed in the Biddlecombs washing machine before being burned, I suspect along with Swift's, on a makeshift bonfire the next day. The washing of Smith's clothes was done by the couple as a favour to him because he was going through a hard time. Their words, not mine. Swift then returned to the scene a short while later and told anyone and everyone that he'd seen someone run away from the area holding a metal pole. Miraculously, Michael initially survived the attack in spite of his severe injuries and even managed to speak to the police from his hospital bed at Colchester General. He informed the officers that he'd received a Facebook message from someone he didn't know in the days leading up to the attack, which informed him that he was getting too close to Ryan and should stay away from her. Swift later admitted to having sent the message using a fake account, but insisted he only did so to stop Michael from spreading vicious rumours about Ryan at the care home where they both worked. Tragically, Michael succumbed to his injuries 36 hours after being attacked, dying from a pulmonary embolism on August 2nd. Iris had the following to say when she learned of her son's death. Michael was only 44 when he passed away. His passing came far too soon for a young man who just wanted to make people's lives better. He will be very much missed by me and all who knew him. Given Michael was Iris's carer, Sandra stepped up and took over the role, ensuring his mum continued to receive the support she so dearly needed. The day after Michael passed away, it came to light that Imogen, Smith's girlfriend, had been in contact with the police and provided them with some vital information regarding the attack. She said she'd met with Smith a day earlier, the same day Michael passed away, and he revealed that he and Swift were the ones responsible. Smith said to her, Me and Scott went out and did someone in. You've got to be my alibi. You've got to tell them we went for a walk. Imogen then said, He said he had to burn all of his clothes because there was blood all over them and the metal pole they used is 30 miles offshore. Regarding Swift, who Smith claimed was the main culprit and the person responsible for murdering Michael, Imogen went on to say, Scott is mental. He is quite proud of the fact he is mental, saying how he is a psychopath how he can have eyes on someone 24-7 and that he knows people. He is obsessed with airsoft and guns. He doesn't stop talking about it. He likes to make threats. He's not all there, really. He would say if anyone hurts his family, they will be gone. You wouldn't see them again. He said if someone tried to break into his house, he would just shoot them. Joe and him would talk about some gun he had upstairs, but I didn't actually see it. On the back of that evidence, the Crown Prosecution Service authorised Essex Police to charge Smith and Swift with murder. Ryan was also arrested and charged. 
Tristan and Enderline Biddlecombe were then arrested a few weeks later and charged with conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. PC Simon Hewitt took part in the search of the Biddlecombe's residence and recalled how Tristan made some bizarre comments to him. PC Hewitt said, We were having a conversation and one of the comments that stayed in my mind was, Finding blood does not necessarily prove murder. I thought that was very strange. Tristan made out as if he was some kind of forensic expert by claiming he had a qualification in forensic science. How true that is, I've no idea. He was a family care worker by trade though, so it seems unlikely. The search of their property led to various items belonging to Smith & Swift being recovered, including a camouflage jacket and a rucksack. The couple's washing machine was also disconnected and taken in as evidence, given the fact they'd washed Smith's clothes in it. During questioning, Swift claimed he was with the Biddlecombs at the time Michael was attacked. He thought he'd been clever by taking a back route to the meeting spot, but he was unknowingly caught on a CCTV camera on his motorbike close to the scene at around the time of the attack. Swift naturally denied the motorbike was his and that the person caught on camera was him. A Just Giving page was created in the immediate aftermath of Michael's death by Joe Lethem, the daughter of his cousin, to give him the send-off he deserved. Joe said, We would like to raise some funds to help his mum Iris give him the send-off he deserves. Michael was a loving, caring son who devoted his life to care for his mother and to helping others. A total of £520 was raised by 29 supporters, which included a £127 donation from the Castle in Ramsey, earned from a bank holiday raffle, and a £40 donation from Harwich Angling Club. The murder trial took place at Chelmsford Crown Court between March and April 2017. Judge Charles Gratwick oversaw the proceedings, and case prosecutor Amjad Malik QC opened the proceedings by announcing that Michael's mum Iris had recently passed away and would miss out on seeing the people responsible for her son's murder getting sent down. Iris, who was 75, died from a heart attack in January 2017. The physical effect of losing her son simply took too much of a toll on her already fragile body. Swift and Ryan pleaded not guilty to their respective murder charges, as did Smith, but the teenager did choose to plead guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. The Biddlecombs also denied their charges regarding perverting the course of justice. The jury of six men and six women returned with their verdicts in early April. Ryan and Swift were found guilty of murder, Smith was found guilty of manslaughter, and the Biddlecombs were found guilty of perverting the course of justice and assisting an offender. Ryan and Swift received life sentences with minimum terms of 17 and 24 years respectively. Their parole eligibility dates are April 17, 2034 and April 15, 2041. Smith received a 12-year sentence for which he was sent to a young offender institution. His parole eligibility date was April 20, 2023, basically halfway into his sentence. I'm unsure whether he has since been paroled or remains behind bars. Tristan and Enderline Biddlecombe each received a prison sentence of two years and six months. Their parole eligibility dates were July 22nd, 2018, so they'll be free now unless they've re-offended. The judge said in his closing statement, Michael Beckwith stood no chance as the life was battered out of him. He had done you, Swift, no harm at all, and had had the misfortune at some stage of replacing you in the affections of Ryan. 
you, Ryan, had been involved in a relationship with Mr. Beckwith, which had come to an end, but it is clear he wanted to get back together with you. The two of you arranged for him to be attacked, and this was not a spur-of-the-moment incident. Michael's family made the following statement in the aftermath of the sentencing. Words cannot express the shock and pain we as a family have suffered since Michael's early passing. His loss is beyond words, especially the events that led to his death. Michael had a big heart, as big as the world. His death has left a gaping hole in our family. Ryan appealed her conviction, insisting her sentence was too harsh, but the Court of Appeal rejected her claim. Judge Philip Katz QC concluded, The judge was entitled to take the view a 17-year minimum was required. We do not think it was manifestly excessive, and this appeal is dismissed. And that was the story of the murder of Michael Beckwith. Thanks again, Amy Barlow, for requesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's new reviews are as follows. Elaine Lytham left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Found this podcast as I'm fascinated with true crime. Absolutely love it. Great info and easy to listen. Have enjoyed the collaborations with writers whose books I've since purchased. Thanks. Steve Roberts left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads... Easy to listen to with an awesome host, keep up the great work. Could you consider covering shithead, sorry, villains, Robert Thompson, born 23rd August 1982, and John Venables, born 13th August 1982, who murdered James Bulger in 1993? Interesting case, as I believe the Torags got out after a couple of years with new identities. Unfortunately, that's the only case I refuse to cover, Steve. I'm not giving those two any more airtime than they've already gotten, Plus, so many have covered it and done a great job. I highly recommend listening to the episode Jenny from It's Murder Up North did on that case. Kerry Willison left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, There's something about Stu's voice that captivates you. The research and delivery is brilliant and informative. Always enjoy the icebreakers. I think I speak for everyone when I say we need story time with your daughter. If you can, would you please consider the case of the first serial killer in England, Mary Ann Cotton? It's already on my list, Kerry. You must have asked for it before, too, as your name is next to it, along with a couple of other peoples on my spreadsheet. Finally, Kelly left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Found the pod by accident and ended up listening to a few newer episodes. I soon realised I needed to hear them all, so I'm on series four. Love it and keep up the hard work. Thank you, Elaine, Steve, Kerry and Kelly for leaving those reviews. If anyone listening wants to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to Patreon.com forward slash BritishMurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes. I recently released a 16th bonus episode on February 26th. That was Monday this week as of recording. And you'll also get access to my weekly journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways and you'll get some thank you goodies for signing up as well. And you'll get a shout out. Hello and welcome to our newest Patreon members, Mark Cheshire, Shea Ellis, Dee Darby, Bina Khalid, Lane Lynn and Wendy. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do so by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash British Murders. 
please continue emailing case suggestions to contact at britishmurders.com or just message me on social media. You're not going to get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out for your trouble, just like Amy did. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.